morning. Good to have you all here today. And just before I start, let me say that um, I can't think of a better way to spend my retirement than serving Christ and His church here at Windsor Christian Fellowship. And so we are excited to be here and uh, just want to use my gifts to serve you all. I know I speak for Cynthia when I say we would covet your prayers in our, our new ministries as they begin, and, and then we will be asking many of you to get involved in ministry too, so you'll be, you'll be hearing from us uh, in the future. Let me open us with prayer. Lord, we, uh, we give you praise and thanks for the great God that you are, and we're excited now to come to your word. Your word is alive. Please speak to us today, O oh God. I pray that you would keep anything false from my lips and uh, that you would give everyone in this room right now ears to hear and hearts to respond. And Lord, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers. We don't want to be just uh, convicted by the truth. We want to be changed by the truth. Would you please help that to happen? And we promise to give you every tiny bit of the glory for what you do in us and through us and to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you remember the television show Extreme Makeover? Remember that? Yeah, it aired on ABC between 2002 and 2007. Listen to how ABC.com described one upcoming season of that show back then. This season expect more emotion, tears, and joy as lifelong dreams and fairy tale fantasies come true. Some of the incredible makeovers you will see include two sisters who have struggled all of their lives with cleft palates and undergone nearly 40 surgeries now turning to their last hope to be normal, the extreme makeover team. A colorful bull rider who's had his teeth knocked out wants to be transformed into an urban cowboy. A goth punk rocker woman who has spent her life hiding behind her appearance, getting the pro program's first make under as the extreme team tones down her shocking style. And in another first, the show will make over an entire family. Children will be styled with hair, makeup, and wardrobe without surgery. New procedures never seen before on the show will be performed, such as a reverse vasectomy for a man who wishes to have another child with his wife, and a hair transplant for a balding young woman. Sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? I won't ask how many of you watched that show back then, and neither will I ask how many of you would like to go on that show if you had the chance. And you know, they also came up with an extreme makeover home edition where they would go into these ugly, run-down homes and do major renovations and turn them into beautiful, updated residences. Did you know that once a person becomes a Christian, they undergo an extreme makeover? And our extreme makeover team is not a bunch of plastic surgeons and makeup artists and hairdressers. No, our extreme makeover team is none other than God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And our personal makeover does not consist of cosmetic changes to our physical bodies. No, our makeover begins on the inside, and it is such a radical transformation that Jesus describes it in John chapter 3 as being born again. 
Have you ever wondered what our Lord meant when He said in John chapter 3, if you want to go to heaven, you must be born again? What actually changes in people who are born again? Are Christians really that different after their conversion than they were before? And if so, how? What what changes in us? How does this born-again experience affect us personally? How does it affect the way we live and think? How does it affect our relationship with God and, and with others? Well, our exciting passage in God's Word this morning helps to answer those questions. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you or sitting on a chair next to you. You're welcome to use that. Our passage today begins in verse 16, but I would like us to look at verses 14 and 15 to sort of set the stage as Paul tells us one of the primary motives that governed his actions in ministry. Look at verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Christ's sacrificial love controlled and compelled Paul and his fellow servants to no longer live for themselves, but rather for the Lord who had died for them. This indicates a radical shift from how how Paul used to live. Before Christ, it was all about Paul and his religion. After Christ, it was all about Jesus. And he continues now in our passage today to talk further about how Christ had radically changed his life and his perspective on things. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So we see here that Paul's perspective on people had radically changed. Before he came to Christ, Paul says he viewed people according to the flesh. Some of your translations say, from a worldly point of view. This is talking about how the unbelieving world views people based on externals. We know, for example, that Paul struggled with prejudice and bigotry before his conversion to Christ. As many of you know, he was a very religious, zealous Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee no less. And as a result, he looked down with disgust on the Gentiles. He thought that since the Jews were God's chosen people, then all non-Jews were dogs. And as a result, many Israelites back then wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. But after he was born again, God totally changed Paul's perspective. Listen to what he says in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And so God helped Paul to realize that in Christ, all of those racial, ethnic, and sociological distinctions that he used to make a big deal out of have been torn down. The Gentiles whom he used to despise, he now considered as brothers and sisters in Christ. Poor slaves that he used to look down on as second-class citizens and he tried to avoid, he now welcomed with open arms as spiritually equal to him in every way. And the same was true of women whom Paul no doubt thought less of before his conversion to Christ. 
In the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, Broncos fan, Raiders fan. What's that other team? Oh, Patriots fan. We are all one in Christ. It boggles my mind how groups like the Ku Klux Klan can call themselves Christians and yet still practice racial hatred and discrimination. Paul's whole perspective on humanity had drastically changed, as had his perspective of Christ. If you notice in verse 16, he says, We used to regard Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. As most of you know, before his conversion, Paul was a Christ hater. He went around persecuting the church. Like most Orthodox Jews of his day, he viewed Jesus as an imposter. And worse yet, Jesus was a blasphemer because he, being a mere man, claimed to be God. And in fact, the Jewish religious leaders of whom Paul was one had Jesus crucified because he was guilty of the crime of blasphemy in their minds. But on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, all of that changed. God literally slammed Paul to the ground, miraculously took the blinders off of his spiritual eyes so he could see and understand the gospel, granted him repentance and faith to believe, and at that moment his whole perspective changed. Jesus was no longer a blasphemer who deserved death, but his precious Lord and Savior who deserved worship and total allegiance. All of a sudden, Christ became his, um, his greatest treasure and the source of his deepest joy. And Gentiles were no longer second-class dogs whom he looked down on in disgust, but rather his brothers and sisters in Christ whom he socialized with and welcomed with open arms. Why did Christ or Paul's perspective change so radically? Well, he goes on to tell us, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You see, the reason Paul's perspective had changed so radically is because Paul himself had changed so radically. He says in verse 17, he's a new creation. His old way of thinking and living and value system had disappeared and a new way of thinking and living and value system came on the scene. This is precisely what Jesus meant in John chapter 3 when he said, if you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. You must become this radically new creature. When the famous 4th century theologian Augustine returned to his hometown after his conversion in Milan, his girlfriend with whom he had had an immoral relationship looked at him and said, Augustine, it is I. He turned to her and said, yes, but it is not I. (laughs) I'm a totally different man than the one you used to know. Did you know that one of the best descriptions of the born-again transformation that we have in the entire Bible is found in the Old Testament? Let me show it to you. Keep your finger here and turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Some of you will have to blow some dust off the pages in Ezekiel because you haven't been there in a while. Ezekiel chapter 36. In this passage, God is telling a group of sinful, rebellious Israelites what he is going to do for them and in them and to them in the future. Let's read verses 25 to 27 of Ezekiel 36. 
God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will, will, will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So first of all, God tells these rebellious people that he is going to cleanse them from all of their sins and idols one day in the future. Next, he's going to give them a new heart and a new human spirit. He will take out that cold heart of stone that was rebellious to him and replace it with a tender heart of flesh that will be sensitive to his leading and to his word. He will then indwell them by his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who will in turn move them to obey all of his commands. Talk about an extreme makeover. Total forgiveness and cleansing, a new heart, a new spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and power to obey God's commands. My friends, the best plastic surgeons in the world can't begin to transform you like this. You can turn back now to our 2 Corinthians 5 passage because Paul goes on to tell us how this transformation came about and some of its consequences. Look at verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the verse begins by saying all of this is from God. All of what is from God? All of this transformation is from God. God takes the initiative in our salvation and transformation, does he not? In fact, our salvation from beginning to end is a gift of God's amazing grace. Author C.S. Lewis describes it like this, and I quote, God was the hunter and I was the deer. He stalked me, took unerring aim, and fired. Unquote. Aren't you thankful that while we were dead in our sins and we were running away from God, God pursued us and stalked us and in His love He caught us. Aren't you thankful for that? The next phrase in verse 18 tells us exactly what happened in our relationship with God. Paul says, God reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Let's focus on that word reconciliation for a moment. It's one of the key words in this text. It's a big long word, but it simply describes when two or more people are in serious conflict and they work things out. I mean, all of us have experienced reconciliation on a human level, haven't we? When two enemies make peace with each other and become friends, they're said to be reconciled. Now, what this word implies about our relationship with God is that at some point in the past, We were enemies with God. Ephesians 2 graphically says that before our conversion to Christ, we were objects of God's wrath. Now, most people today don't understand that and they don't agree with that. I'll never forget an angry, violent young man who came into my office years ago. He was full of of hatred and he began to share with me several episodes from his incredible childhood It was full of physical, verbal, and emotional abuse. Among other things, he had been severely beaten, sexually assaulted, set on fire, and abandoned by his parents. 
because of such a horrendous upbringing, this man hated God. He said, Jeff, if your God is so loving, how could he let one of his children be abused like I was abused? Why would God allow his child to go through such torment? That's a great question, is it not? And I certainly didn't have all of the answers for that young man. But one thing he needed to understand is he had a misconception about his relationship with God. When he was born into the human race, he was not one of God's children. They were not friends. It's not popular theology these days. It's certainly not politically correct. But the Bible teaches that because of our sin, all of us are born into the human race as enemies of God and objects of his wrath. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve God's mercy and grace. We don't even deserve a chance to be saved. All we deserve for our sin is God's ultimate condemnation and judgment. That's the bad news. From birth, we are all alienated from God and we desperately need to be reconciled to Him. It's bad news. Now, most people today would disagree with that and they would say, I don't feel like I'm an enemy of God. But that's what the Bible teaches. The great news of the gospel, however, is that God in His love and mercy and amazing grace provided for us a way to be reconciled to Him, and that is through the bloody sacrificial death of His perfect Son. Listen to how Romans 5 puts it. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.10, For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Can you imagine right now dying for one of your enemies? So they can go free. No way, right? Well, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Romans 5.10 says, while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. And even when he was hanging on the cross, he prayed for his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Throughout his life on earth, he taught us to love our enemies, and he modeled that, especially on the cross. Is that amazing love or what? And as a result of placing our faith in his sacrificial death for our sins, Romans 5, 1 says, we are now at peace with our Creator. Skip down to verse 21. And let's read another description of what God did to make this reconciliation possible. It's an amazing verse. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I can't begin to fathom the depths of that verse. Entire books have been written on this one verse. Jesus was the perfect, sinless Son of God. He never told a lie. He never lusted or gossiped or worried. He never disobeyed the Father one time his entire life. He had no sin. But this verse said that God made him who had no sin become sin for us. Now, as you might expect, there's been a ton of debate about the meaning of that phrase, Jesus became sin for us. It doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. No, he remained perfect. 
Most scholars agree that it more than likely means a combination of several things. First of all, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner. As our substitute, he became the object of God's wrath that we deserved. As a sin offering hanging on the cross, he bore the penalty and guilt for all of our sin. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says it like this about Jesus. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Our Lord was pierced. He was crushed. I'm captivated by that line in verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So severe was the punishment that God the Father literally turned his back on Christ for the first time in their eternal relationship. Thus prompting Jesus to cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a few hours, Jesus became God's enemy and the object of God's wrath, all because of your sin and mine. We can't even begin to imagine the anguish he experienced that day. So God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? Rest of the verse. That we might become the righteousness of God. Now when you talk about the righteousness of God from a theological perspective, there are at least two types according to the Bible. There's imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. Bear with me here. It's a a little bit theological, but you need to understand. Pastor Brandon talked about imputed righteousness a, a few Sundays ago. It is the perfect righteousness of Christ that is accredited to our account by faith so that when God looks down on us, he sees us through the blood of Jesus and actually sees perfection, as it were. It is this imputed righteousness that will be the basis for every single one of us getting to heaven one day. Imparted righteousness, on the other hand, is the practical holiness that the Holy Spirit produces in each of His children on an ongoing basis. Remember in Ezekiel 36, God promised those Israelites, I'm going to indwell you by my Holy Spirit, and He will in turn move you to obey my commands. Whenever we do good deeds in this life with pure motives, it is because the Holy Spirit is empowering us to do them. He is producing His righteousness through us. You see, holiness is not something we do for God. Holiness is something God does in us. Both types of righteousness are given to us as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become and possess the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange that Pastor Brandon talked about a couple of Sundays ago. Jesus took Our sins and all of God's wrath and judgment that our sins deserved upon himself. And in exchange, he gave us his perfect righteousness. How great of a deal is that for us? But that's not all. Not only have we become new creatures in Christ, and not only have we been reconciled to God, and not only have we received the righteousness of God, we have also been given an exciting new mission. Let's read about it, verses 18 through 20. All of this is from God 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Those of you who are Christians, do you see yourself as an ambassador for Christ at work, at school, in your family, in the neighborhood? That's exactly what Paul says you are in these verses. Ambassador for Christ. And though we represent Jesus with both our actions and our words, it is our words that Paul is primarily focusing on in this text. If you notice, he says here in verse 19, we've been given the message of reconciliation to verbally share with the lost. It's a message to share. I hear Christians often say, well, you know, I may not say anything about Jesus, but I witness to people with my lifestyle. And there's some truth in that, is there not? Our lifestyle is a witness, and sometimes our actions speak much louder than our words, right? But as ambassadors for Christ, we must also witness with our words. Why is it that when it comes to verbal witnessing, many Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth? You notice? We can talk about everything under the sun but Jesus. We get scared. We... We don't know what to say. We fear being rejected and made fun of. I can tell you my heart breaks when I think of the times that I should have spoken up for Christ, but I did not because I was scared. And you all can think of that too, can you not? Let's ask the Lord to give us a deeper love for our non-Christian friends and acquaintances. And let's ask the Lord to give us courage to share the gospel when opportunities present themselves. The least we can do is tell people what Jesus has done and is doing in our lives. We can be a witness at least in that way, can we not? Or at least just just share who Christ is to you. Let's be a church of ambassadors for Christ. I mean, think about it. This text says we've been given the message of reconciliation. Here are billions of people alienated from God, and we have the message that will tell them how they can be rightly related to their Creator. Is that a great message or what? I began this sermon talking about the Extreme Makeover television show. Most of the people on that show saw some major problems in their physical appearance and desperately wanted it to change. They thought they were ugly or flawed or unattractive in some way. And after their makeover, most of them felt so much better about themselves. They were happy and excited about the changes that were made. Not that I watched that show, mind you, but that's what I've heard. According to the Bible, all of us are born with some major problems on the inside. Spiritually speaking, we're ugly and flawed with sin, and we desperately need a radical change. As Jesus put it in John 3, if you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. Our extreme makeover team is none other than the triune God. And in our Bible passages today, we have learned at least four things that happen to all true Christians who have placed their faith in Jesus as their sin bearer and have come into contact with the divine makeover team. 
Examine your life to see if these things are true of you. First, all of our sins have been forgiven, atoned for, and we are reconciled to God. A peace treaty has been signed in blood, the blood of Jesus. And as a result, we are at peace with God. We've been adopted into His family, and He is our Abba, Papa, Daddy. We will never face His wrath and condemnation for our sins ever again. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great news? No condemnation. Not one tiny bit of condemnation. Second, we have received the righteousness of God, both imputed and imparted. We are holy in God's sight. And the Holy Spirit indwells us and is producing in us a standard of godliness we can never produce on our own. And even though we all have a long ways to grow, we still struggle with sin every day. God is working in us, changing us and molding us into the image of Christ. And He will not stop until He is finished. Do you see God working in your life? Slowly, progressively, are you growing in your faith? Third, we have become radically new, born-again creatures whose hearts, values, and perspectives have changed. I mean, those of you who were saved later in life, do you remember, for some of you, it was an amazing change, was it not? You were in the party scene and just sending up a storm, and God just grabbed your heart and changed you, and it's, it's different. Verse 17 of our text says, Old things have gone and new things have come. Romans 6 says that before Christ we were slaves to sin. After Christ we are slaves to righteousness. Ephesians 2, before we were spiritually dead. Now we are spiritually alive in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. And finally, we've been given this exciting new mission, and that is to be passion-filled ambassadors for Christ. We're called to take the same message that set us free from slavery to sin and condemnation and share it with the unbelieving world so they too can be set free. I close with a true story. Auschwitz was the first German concentration camp in World War II to become an extermination camp. The gas chambers were in constant use. But because of the great influx of new prisoners daily, the Germans began using the firing squad as well. One day, the German commandant selected ten men from the barracks to be executed by firing squad. One of those he selected was the father of a large family. And it was, when he was pulled out of line, the man fell to his knees and began begging the commandant to spare his life. The German officer was unresponsive until the man standing next to the guy on his knees, uh, a Catholic priest named Maximilian Kolbe, <coughs> stepped forward to offer his life in exchange for the man on his knees. Surprisingly, the commandant agreed. But instead of being led to the firing squad, the priest was thrown into a dark, damp, tiny cell where he experienced the agonizing death of starvation. And today, Maximilian Kolbe is an honored saint in the Catholic Church because he died a horrible death in the place of one man. There are millions of people around the world today who worship, adore, and follow Jesus Christ because he endured a horrible death, not just for one needy person, but for countless millions. He was our substitute so that we could escape the hellish firing squad of God's judgment. And what we learn from our passages today is that one of the things Jesus' death purchased for us was an extreme makeover. 
He died so that we could become radically changed, reconciled ambassadors for Christ. You know, I think there's a huge need in the body of Christ today for us to have a biblical self-image. Not to think too highly of ourselves or too lowly. There are, uh, there are Christians today who think too highly of themselves. They haven't begun to see the depth of their sin and hypocrisy and self-righteousness as they look down on others. But you know, there are a lot of Christians today who I believe think too lowly of themselves. And what I mean by that is they haven't begun to believe what happened to them and understand what happened to them when they were born again and to see who they are in Christ. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not the same person you used to be. Not even close. Stop listening to the world's value system. Teenagers, young people, stop letting your peers determine your worth or the media. You're not what you see in the mirror. You're not the sum of your past mistakes, sins, and failures. You're not the grades you get on your report card or the sum of all of your accomplishments and the successes in life. Your value is not based on how you look or if you're in the cool crowd at school or what kind of car you drive or where you live or what you do for a a job. That's the world's value system. Paul says in verse 16 of our passage today, he used to view people like that too, but not anymore. They're based on superficial externs. Instead, you need to see yourself as God sees you in Christ. Try to wrap your mind around these amazing truths. Completely forgiven. Reconciled and at peace with God. Adopted into His family and thus co-heirs with Jesus. Holy, righteous, perfect in His eyes with the righteousness of Christ. Transformed and being transformed. Born again, radically new ambassadors for Christ. That's who God says you are. Amen. Believe it. Memorize it. Preach it to yourself every day. How often we forget who we are in Christ. I remind myself of these truths every single day. You know, I think it's so easy to get very down on ourselves because of our struggle with sin. And we have to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, even as Christians. Do we not? Here's the deal. There are probably some people in the room right now. You've just seen what God's Word, we've just studied what God's Word says and how it describes the born-again experience. And you say, I can't relate to that. That, that does not describe me. I don't have a relationship with Jesus like that, Jeff. I, I don't. If that is you, I would plead with you this morning to come to Jesus today. You need to be reconciled with your Creator. Did you notice in verse 20 of our passage, Paul says, we implore you to be reconciled to God. We beg you to come to Him. Repent of your sins. Ask for forgiveness. Believe in and trust completely in the finished work of Christ on the cross as a payment for all of your sins and trust completely in His perfect righteousness for your salvation. And if by God's grace you come to Jesus in repentant faith, He will gladly receive you and transform you from the inside out 
And there will be this huge party in heaven as the angels dance and rejoice. Every time one person repents and comes to Jesus, there's a party in heaven. (laughs) And I can tell you that when you experience this extreme makeover, you, you may not feel any better about how you look on the outside. And there's another verse that's like uh, in 2 Corinthians, like it's becoming my life first, the older I get. It says, outwardly we're wasting away. Can any of you relate to that? Outwardly you're wasting away. You may not feel any better on the outside, but you will feel great on the inside. Because the rest of that verse in 2 Corinthians says, outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. You'll feel great on the inside when you come to Christ and you're born again. The guilt of all of your sin will be removed. The barrier between you and God will be torn down. And you will experience a peace and a joy like you've never known before. In a sentence, what Paul is saying to us in our passage today is this. Jesus died in our place so that we could experience an extreme makeover and become radically new ambassadors for Christ. Let me say that again. Jesus died in our place so that we could experience an extreme makeover and become radically new ambassadors for Christ, all to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen? Amen. 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 Would you bow with me, please, in prayer? Jesus, when we think about what You went through on the cross, we, all, we, all we can say is thank You. How You, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And You took on the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation that we deserved. You took on all of that. And in the place of that, You gave us Your righteousness. We will worship You forever for that, Lord. We... We don't, we don't know what else to say, but, but thank you. And I pray, Lord, for people in the room right now who can't relate to this born-again experience that I've just described. Oh, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you, would you open their eyes so that they could see the truth of the gospel?